Well, my name is Adam, if we haven't had the chance to meet, and it's great to have you with us today, whether you're here in the building or whether you're joining us online. Now, a few years ago, there was a uh, Christian comedian, and he put together a parody of a reality television show. He called it Church Hunters. And it followed uh, this young couple who moved to a new city, and they went on the search, the hunt, for a new church. And they visited a number of different churches, and as they visited these churches, they had a set of criteria of what they were looking for. So, for example, the preacher needed to be serious but funny. He needed to wear jeans but not a suit. The service shouldn't have more than five songs. There needs to be a service at 2 p.m. because that's what suits their schedule. There needs to be good coffee and free Wi-Fi, and so on and so forth. Now, like all good comedy, it's a little bit funny because there's a little bit of truth to it. Many people do go church hunting. They go looking for a church that suits their particular wants and meets their particular criteria. Now, of course, there's nothing um, inherently wrong about this. In fact, we should be discerning about the churches that we join. We should have certain things that we're looking for. We should have a set of criteria. But the question is, what are those things? What should be on our criteria list? What should we look for in a church? Should it be what the pastor wears? That's why I wore a suit jacket today, just in case it was. Or whether he's funny, which obviously isn't a criteria here, which is great. How many songs we sing, the service times, the quality of the coffee. I mean, what should our criteria be? Thankfully, in this passage that we're looking at today in Acts chapter 2, we're given the answer. We're told the things that we should look for or expect to see in a church. We're given the criteria we should use. Now we are, if you've been around, you know that we're in a sermon series at the moment in the New Testament book of Acts. We are in week four. Now Acts is essentially Jesus the sequel. It's the story of what happened next after Jesus' resurrection and his return to heaven. What we saw in week one is that Jesus gave the apostles and us a worldwide mission to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. What we saw in week two and what we've looked at the last couple of weeks was when God gave uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower this mission. This is what we know as Pentecost. And this is what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. In fact, a few weeks ago, we really looked at the event of Pentecost when God poured out the Spirit. Last week, we talked about the explanation of Pentecost, Peter's sermon that he gave on that day to explain it. Today, what we see is the effect of Pentecost. What happens when the Spirit of God fills the people of God? What happens when the Spirit is powerfully at work within the church? Now, have you ever wondered, what does a Spirit-filled church look like? How do I know if the Spirit of God is at work among the people of God? Well, the answer is found in this passage. This passage shows us what the church can and should be, 
what God intends the church to do and to be. What it looks like when the Spirit of God fills the people of God. If you've ever wondered, what should I look for in a church? What should the church be busy doing? Well, we see the answer here in this passage. Now, before we dive into the details, let me be clear about just a couple of things. Firstly, this church that we're looking at in Acts chapter 2, this was not a perfect church. You know, you'll sometimes hear people say, well, we just need to get back to the early church. We need to become like the church in the New Testament. But this church was not perfect. We'll see that very clearly in the weeks to come with some of the things that happen among them. The truth is, there is no such thing as a perfect church. Instead, what this passage gives us is principles and practices that we can pursue to increasingly become the church that God has called us to be. And that leads us to the second thing I want to point out about this passage, and that is we cannot apply everything we see in this passage woodenly or literalistically. So, for example, we read in verse 46 that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now, does this mean we should have church every day? Should we gather together every day? Maybe some would like that, maybe some wouldn't. It wouldn't be bad, it wouldn't be wrong, it would just be impractical. We've got jobs to go to, we've got other things to do. And the reason that they were able to meet together each and every day in the temple courts is that this took place during a Jewish holiday period, the festival of Pentecost. And so they had more time to be able to devote themselves to these things. And so we cannot just apply everything we read in this passage woodenly or literalistically. I mean, after all, a little bit later on, we'll read they also sold their homes and gave away the proceeds to meet the needs of others. Maybe we should make that a standard practice again. Now, we need to look at the principles and we need to be able to apply them and live them out faithfully. And as we do that, we will become increasingly so the church that God has created us and called us to be. So, with that being said, let's now dive into this picture of what the church can and should be. This vision of what the Spirit-filled church looks like. And what I think we see in this passage is four characteristics of a spirit-filled church. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. A spirit-filled church will be deep in the Word. Deep in the Word. See, the Spirit of God does not lead us to lose our minds. The Spirit of God leads us to engage our minds. The Spirit of God does not take us beyond God's Word. The Spirit of God takes us deeper into God's Word. This is what we see here in verse 42. This is what we read about this church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles, of course, were the leaders of the early church. These were those who had been disciples of Jesus during his life. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus after his resurrection. And so they were uniquely qualified to testify about Jesus. And the apostles played a unique role in the establishment of the church. We see something of their unique role there in verse 43. It's what we read about the apostles. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, just like Jesus' ministry was authenticated by miracles and wonders and signs, 
The ministry of the apostles is authenticated by wonders and and signs and miracles. It is to confirm that their message, their teaching, was from God. Now, what was their teaching? What was the, the message of the apostles? Well, it was the gospel. It was the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. This was the crux of their teaching. This is what we saw last week in Peter's sermon when the Holy Spirit was poured out. See, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, Peter didn't start to talk mainly about the Holy Spirit. He talked about Jesus and what Jesus had done. This is the crux of the apostles' teaching. And so the question is, well, what about us? How do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Where do we find it? And of course, the answer is, we find it in the pages of the New Testament. See, we can't just go down to the temple because the apostles aren't here anymore. But their teaching has been faithfully recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament. And so the way that we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching is we devote ourselves to the Scriptures. The way for us to be filled with the Spirit, the first mark of a Spirit-filled church, is to be deep in the Word. Now, I wonder if this is surprising to you. Because after all, when when we think about and talk about being Spirit-filled, perhaps the first thing that doesn't come to mind is learning and teaching and instruction. Maybe it's more freedom and spontaneity and so forth. But according to Acts 2, one of the ways that we know the Spirit of God is present and active, it's when the Word of God is treasured and believed. So be wary of any spiritual movement that diminishes or sidelines the Bible. When the Spirit is moving, the Bible will be loved and cherished and believed. I like the way one uh, commentator puts it, a guy by the name of Philip Ryken. He says, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired Holy Scripture, the one who breathed the mind of God into the pages of the Bible. His desire for us is us to listen, sorry, his desire is for us to listen to his voice speaking in Scripture. So rather than eliminating the need for good teaching, the Spirit's coming actually intensifies our desire to receive biblical instruction. The reason the first Christians were so devoted to God's Word was that they were so full of God's Spirit. We ourselves are most spiritual when we are most devoted to God's Word. A Spirit-filled church is a Bible-teaching church. And so I wonder, what's your attitude towards the Bible? Is the Bible valuable and precious and necessary to you? Do you seek to understand it, to to apply it, to obey it? What about, what's your appetite for the Bible? Do, do Do you want to read it? You know, your appetite is actually a good indicator of your health. If you have no appetite for food, if you don't feel like eating, then usually it's a sign that you're not physically healthy. In the same way, if you have no appetite for spiritual food, it might be a sign of spiritual malnourishment. And so perhaps the question then becomes, well, how do we begin to move forward? How do we begin to get our appetite back? And I think the only way for our appetite to come back is to begin to feed again on the living Word of God. And perhaps the best way to start is to start small. Don't go home today and try to read Leviticus in one sitting. 
Maybe just read a few verses from Acts. Chew on them, think on them, pray through them. And if you do that each and every day, just a few verses from God's word, just see what God might do in your life. And if you miss a day, don't beat yourself up. There's no gold stars for, for, for making sure you read your Bible every day. Just get on the horse and read it the next day. Just approach it like you would any meal, one bite at a time. What about our appetite for the Word as a church? We want to be a, a church that's filled with God's Spirit, which means we want to be a, a Bible-teaching church. This is why we read the Bible in our services. This is why we generally preach through books of the Bible. This is why we, we produce growth group guides to go along with our sermon series, because we want to, uh, all of us to be equipped to dig into God's Word, to go deep in the Word, which is a mark of a Spirit-filled church. But, and, and it's really important to point out, it's not the only mark of a Spirit-filled church. You know, we belong to the Christian Reformed Churches of Australia denomination, and if you don't know what that means, it means we have our roots in the Reformation, when the Bible and its message was rediscovered in the 16th century. And so we as a denomination, we as a church, we love the Bible, which means we might potentially be okay if, if the passage stopped there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, amen. <laughs> but that's not what it says. It goes on to give us another mark of a spirit-filled church. And the second mark of a spirit-filled church is equally important, and it's this. Spirit-filled church will not only be deep in the Word, it will also be loving in relationships. The early church not only had strong convictions, they also had strong relationships. They not only loved deep theology and deep doctrine, but they, loved deep, they had deep relationships. And if we want to be a healthy spirit-filled church, we need both. I mean, truth without love is harsh and ugly. Love without truth is sentimentality. We need both. And this is why we read in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, the word fellowship has become something of, of Christianese, a, a bit of jargon. You know, we might use it to refer to the, a chat before church or, or donuts and coffee after church, which it is, but it's also more than these things. The word fellowship in, in Greek is the word koinonia. It's related to the word common. It's about what we have, what we share in common. Now, what do we have in common? If you were to see what I could see, you know, everybody in the room, you would see on the surface, not much. I mean, we are very different in many different ways. We're from different ages and stages of life, different cultural backgrounds, different political views and so forth. I mean, on the surface, we might not have that much in common. But if you were to look beneath the surface, we have unity right down to the deepest level because we are united by none other than God himself. We have the same Lord and Savior. We share in the same spirit. And we have the same Father and belong to the same family. We have unity right down to the deepest level. This is what binds us together. But if this unity in God is going to be real and genuine, it won't just stay at this deep level. It will be expressed at the practical level. 
It will be like water in a fountain. It will bubble up and over to the surface. It will be seen and it will be felt and it will be experienced. This is what we see happening here in Acts chapter two. Look with me at verse 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They were so united, so together, so devoted to one another that they sold their own homes and possessions so they could use that money to meet the needs of others. And so we're going to be taking up a donation of homes after the service today. I'm just kidding. Now, you might be thinking, is the church just after my money? And of course, the answer is no. God is after your heart. But you see, God had so captured the hearts of these believers that even their homes had become dispensable to them. You might be thinking, are Christians communists? I mean, this sounds a little bit like communism, doesn't it? And of course, the answer is no. First of all, it was voluntary. No one made them do this. No, no government was forcing them to do this. They wanted to do this. This was an overflow of generosity. And secondly, it wasn't everyone that did this. We know that there were other believers who continued to own their own homes. Look at verse 46. They broke bread in their homes. So there were some believers that continued to own their homes. So this was not an enforced regulation upon a reluctant people. This was an explosion of generosity fueled by great love and deep joy. And what was the result? Well, we read a little bit later in Acts chapter 4 that there was not a needy person among them. This is amazing. Can you imagine how amazing this must have been, especially in the days before Centrelink and JobKeeper? I mean, they literally took care of their own. We often like to remind our kids, sharing is caring. Well, this is just next level. And this is not something we can manufacture on our own. This is something only the Spirit of God can do. And it's the mark of a Spirit-filled church, loving relationships. So I guess the question is, what about us? What about you? I'm not asking if you've sold your home, I'm asking if you're devoted to fellowship. This goes beyond attending a service on a Sunday, this goes beyond streaming a service online, this is investing yourself in relationships. This is knowing and being known by others. It's giving of yourself for the good of others. As a pastor, I have the great privilege to see a lot of what goes on behind the scenes, to see acts of love and generosity and service that not everyone gets to see. And I am so thankful to be part of this church community. We are in many ways marked by loving relationships. Now, are we perfect? Of course not. Can we grow? Can we get better in this area? Of course we can. But there are some clear signs that God is working and has worked among us. Let me just give you one. Last, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard that for the first time I can remember, we are ahead of our giving budget for the year. 
Now, that is just amazing, and it says to me that you are invested and you are wanting to meet needs and to see God's kingdom go forward. It's a sign that the Spirit of God is at work among His people here at Bray Park. So let me ask again, are you investing in relationships? Or let me ask the question a little bit differently. If everyone approached, if everyone in our church approached relationships the way you approach relationships, would we be a church with loving relationships? If everyone in our church served the way that you do, would we be a servant-hearted church? If everyone gave the way you do, would we be a generous church? If everyone reached out to others on a Sunday the way you do, would we be a welcoming church? Now, they're confronting questions, I know, but they're not intended to make us feel guilty or proud. They're just intended to get us to think, am I a spectator? Am I on the sidelines? Or am I investing in relationships? Am I devoted to fellowship? Now, we can't do everything, and no one expects us, you to do everything. We can't be known by everyone, not in a church of our size. But we can all do something, and we can all seek to, to know someone. We can all contribute to creating a culture of loving relationships, which is where the Spirit wants to lead us. And so a Spirit-filled church will be deep in the Word. They'll be loving in relationships. Thirdly, the, the third mark of a Spirit-filled church is this. It will also be genuine in worship. Genuine in worship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and then we see at the end of the verse, to breaking of bread, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, these two things are are different elements of public worship. The breaking of the bread probably refers to Lord's Supper, the meal that we remember, the, the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. The prayer, the reference to prayer there is probably a public prayer rather than private prayer. It literally says they devoted themselves to the prayers. And so the early church gathered together to worship God, to remember what God had done for them in Jesus through the Lord's Supper, and to come before God in prayer together. And there are a couple of things about the worship of the early church that stand out here to us. Firstly, it was both formal and informal. It was both large and small. We're told there that they would meet together both in the temple courts and in their homes. In other words, they would get together in large groups for corporate worship like we're doing today, and they would meet together in their homes for smaller groups to to know one another and to worship God together. And this is what we continue to do to this day. Meet together in large groups, meet together in smaller groups. Formal and informal, large and small, we need both. Secondly, we also see about their worship that it was joyful and reverent. We're told there in verse 46 that when they met together, they did so with glad and sincere hearts. Both of those things tell us something about true worship. Firstly, to be glad is to be joyful, to be exuberant. And of course, they, like us, had every reason to be joyful. In Jesus, our sins are forgiven, our future is certain. We have every reason to worship God with gladness. And I wonder if someone came in among us and they observed us. The way we prayed, the way we worshipped, the way we interacted with one another, would they conclude that we're a glad and joyful people? If someone observed you and and followed you around, the way way you worship and interact and pray and, and whatnot, would they conclude that you're a joyful person? 
Now, I'm not talking about forced happiness and fake smiles. I mean, no one wants that. But this is why the second word is so important, because they worshipped with glad, joyful, and sincere hearts. Their worship wasn't fake, it wasn't forced. They didn't try to work themselves up into a frenzy. They didn't try to manipulate the mood. It was genuine. They worshipped God with gladness and genuine hearts. And this is real and true worship. This is a mark of a spirit-filled church, deep in the word, loving in relationships, genuine in worship. It's really quite simple, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, it's not that complex or complicated. Teaching from the Bible, relationships that are loving, and worship that is genuine and joyful. This is a spirit-filled church, and this is a church that will make a difference in the world which is exactly what we see in the fourth and final mark of a spirit-filled church here in this passage, which is number four, a spirit-filled church will be growing in number. Just like a healthy tree in good soil will grow, so to a church that is founded upon God's Word and filled with God's Spirit, it will grow, both in the maturity of its members and in its reach to those who don't yet know Jesus. But look very carefully how this growth takes place. Because it doesn't say that they devoted themselves to evangelism. Now, there's nothing wrong with evangelism. Evangelism is a very good thing. We we should be sharing the hope that we have in Jesus. But what happens here is they devoted themselves to the Word, to each other, to worship. And as they did these things, others took notice. And God used what they were doing to do His work. Verse 47... And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, the growth wasn't ultimately their work. It was God's work. Only God can open blind eyes to see the truth of Jesus. Only God can soften hard hearts to to repent and place faith in Jesus. God is the one who brings the growth. God is the one who builds his church. But like any good builder, God uses tools to get the job done. And God uses the witness of his people. Through the power of his word, through the power of his Holy Spirit, and through the power of his people, God is at work in the world to draw more people to himself. Through the witness of his local church, you and me. And this means that we all have a vital role to play. You have a vital role to play. And so at the start of the sermon, I asked the question, what should we look for in a church? What should be our criteria? But as I close, I want to change the question slightly. Are you becoming what others should look for among the people of God? Are you going deep in the word? Are you investing in relationships? Are you worshipping with glad and genuine heart? With a glad and genuine heart. And are you welcoming the outsider? You see, as we do these things together and as we continue to rely on God's Spirit, God will turn us and make us into the church that He's calling us to be. A church that is beautiful and powerful. A church that is growing and maturing. To see more people find and discover 
life that is truly life in Jesus. This is what God did for these early Christians in Acts 2. And this is what God can do for us today. Let me pray. Father, this is our prayer. That you would do among and in and through us what only you can do. That you might fill us with your spirit, Lord. So that we might be a people and a church that goes deep into the truths of your word. That deeply loves one another. That worships you, Lord, with glad and genuine hearts. And Lord, that welcomes those in who don't yet know you. Lord, please so fill us with your spirit. Please so ground us in your word that we might be, as Jesus called us to be, a city on a hill, a light in the darkness, a people for your own possession and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for this closing blessing before we sing together. May the blessing of God, the love of Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit strengthen and encourage you so that as you go from here, you may live lives of gratitude and service. Amen.